0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So we have these six weeks to contemplate and in particular to use the Buddha's teachings to help us contemplate the quality of the mind distracted mind, not distracted mind, aversive mind, a non-averse mind, greedy mind, lustful mind or a not-so-greedy mind, a deluded mind, not so deluded mind, a restless, scattered mind or not, a heavy, constricted, dull, sleepy mind or not. And presuming that there are moments the mind is not distracted, then the nature of that non-distraction, how unified is the mind? Unified in the present moment, unified in a way that includes an awareness of the knowing itself, not wavering in that unification, that being stable, no wavering, No coming and going, but that stability, that wholeness of mind without wavering, and liberated mind, right, which just points to the mind free of selfing in that moment or in those moments. And I'll go through this more carefully uh, using the Buddha's teachings on this discourse he gave on mindfulness of the mind. Just before I came over to the center this evening, I stumbled upon an old quote I had written down on a post-it by Hannah Moore. I think she's like an 18th century British sort of religious thinker, writer. Um, And she wrote, The the ingenuity of self-deception is inexhaustible. (laughs) That's a great line. The ingenuity of self-deception is inexhaustible. And uh, this should, I think, inspire in in us a lot of humility and awe and respect, just like, oh yeah, this, what we're doing here, this six-week course, this is a worthy endeavor. You know, as best we can, as challenging as it is, frustrating, even humiliating, it's really good to get to know the mind. And it's amazing, you know, that we haven't really given it a lot of attention. That's really one of those astounding things. What is the nature of the mind right now? Not philosophically or theoretically, but this mind here and now. What does that word even mean, mind? And some of you know chitta, the Pali word, can get translated either heart or mind and in a way that you know the simple answer to what is mind this is mind because you know I may be looking at my computer or I may be imagining there are people out there or I may be you know feeling the cool air of the air conditioner that's just cycled on here in the building but all this is being known in the mind this experience of being a human being is always an experience of mind and the fact that that seems provocative what i just said is is just uh, evidence that we haven't really paid attention it's always a mind experience even when you're enjoying the woods i'm going to go up to ely minnesota tomorrow morning and spend a few days with win who's up at an artist uh, retreat and, um, but it's all gonna be a mind experience. The drive up, dangling my feet into the cool lake, maybe jumping in, feeling the sun on my body, seeing animals or whatever happens up there. That's gonna be experiencing an experience being known by the mind. And here's the kicker, being known in the mind. I'm not saying that there aren't sights that we see or sounds that we hear, but all we know is the experience of mind. Our whole life is knowing the experience of the mind. There's always knowing and something being known, and the something that's being known is something in the so-called mind, not somewhere else. One of our early teachers here in Minnesota, the Twin Cities Vipassana Collective, started, I think, in 1987, when and I moved to Minnesota in, in 1991, and Common Ground got started in 1993. So there was an insight meditation community here in the Twin Cities before Common Ground. And one of the early teachers was Shinzen Young, a wonderful teacher. I think he now lives in Vermont, but he has quite a... Uh, an active online presence, and uh, but one of the things he used to say in the early nineties is, "Subtle is significant," and this is really helpful, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we use objects of meditation that are relatively obvious, like a loving kindness phrase or being with the body, and it's really good that embodied presence is a really useful skill. But all of these sort of more concrete things that we pay attention to to help ground and show up in the present moment are really in the service of getting to know the heart and mind. And there's a story from Islam, the Sufi tradition, and there was a kind of a wise and somewhat wild, funny character, not clear whether the person was actually... Uh, a real person or not but sort of lived on in mythology or legends and the person's name was Nasaruddin and one of the stories associated with this character is uh, he's out searching under one of those gas lamps or maybe an oil lamp back in the early, you know, many centuries ago looking for a jewel that he had lost and he's searching and searching eventually the neighbors notice him out there under the light post searching, and they come out, and they start looking, and after a few more minutes, one of the neighbors says, so where exactly did you lose this jewel? And he pointed off into a field, you know, far away from the light, and they sort of looked at him in disbelief, like, well, why are we looking here if you lost it over there? He said, well, there's really good light here. And uh, this is a little bit like avoiding using the mind to study the mind it's a little uncomfortable because it's subtle, the mind. Maybe you even had that sense during the meditation or your own reflections this evening, as I've been talking, that it almost feels a little weird or self-conscious to be using awareness to be interested in the knowing mind and what the mind is knowing, what the mind is doing. Just to be putting one's attention on the mind is sort of a breakthrough. Like that, the mind can be the object of awareness is already a step in the right direction. Like I said, you know, something to respect, something to have some humility around, something to have a, yeah, just a heightened sense like, oh, there's something to learn here. I remember a story that Ajahn Sumedho used to tell one of our. Elders in the Theravada early Buddhist tradition here in the West. He's a, an American Buddhist monk, but who was the abbot of the monasteries in England for many decades and now no longer the abbot. I guess sort of retired, although I'm not sure monks actually retire, but uh, not in an official capacity at Amaravati anymore. But one of the things Ajahn Samhita would say about his early years, I think before he had become fluent in Thai In for many his early years as a monk he was in Thailand practicing under Achan Cha and some of the other elders in the Thai forest tradition and I forget who it was that he met but there was a, a well-known very respected elder Thai forest monk and uh, Ajahn Sumedho's um, Thai wasn't very good and but there was just a Opportunity to interact with this wise elder monk. And uh, it was something like he just pointed to his heart and they communicated just enough that Ajahn Sumedho got the point, it's all here, it's all about the heart, it's all about the mind. We just need to get to know the mind. And the thing is, you know, it can seem intimidating because... Our mind is sort of corrupted. We immediately go to uh, philosophical ideas when we think, okay, i got to get to know the mind. But like I was pointing to a few minutes ago, this is always mind. The mind is what's here, now. You know, and if if you notice that you start scrambling, like, what do you mean here and now? (laughs) That's the mind too. Right? So whatever the response, whatever the reaction might be, whatever the discomfort might be, that's all here and now in the mind. One more story that comes out of our tradition. This is from Bhante Gunaratana. There's a good book uh, that he wrote about the Eightfold, uh, I think it's called Eight Mindful Steps to Happiness. And it's Bhante Gunaratana's book on the Eightfold Path. He's a long-time teacher here in the West, but he's originally from Sri Lanka. I think he ordained as a, a boy. He was either in his teens or even younger. So he's been a monk for a long time. Now he's got to be close to 90, if not even a little bit above that. And um, But he tells a story about, um, you know, If somebody, if some divine being wanted to hide the secret to happiness, where would they hide it? They'd hide it in the place that no one would look, which is the heart or mind. Because it's, there's a kind of like ignorance, delusion shows up. Like one of the expressions of delusion is thinking that we already know. And one of the things we think we already know is like, I know what's here. And What's here is not the secret to happiness. So ha- the secret to happiness has to be out there, you know. And th- there's a kind of arrogant certainty, of like, why would I be interested in what's here and now? Because what I sense, what I think is here and now, is like me being unhappy, or me being unsatisfied. So therefore, satisfaction or happiness has to be somewhere else. So it's a really useful story, you know. And I often you know my own version of that story I some of you have heard me say because I say it a lot, you know, if I told us all that I hid you know a million dollars, you know and i and I said it's right here <laughs> in the heart and mind, we get very interested pretty quick, but you know when the Buddha says or when otherwise people tell us that there is a lot to learn and see that's here and now in the heart and it's liberating. It makes us a wise and kind, nimble, happy human being and it's here and now. It's always here and now. You just have to get interested and really, you know, first we find, like when we first start to get interested, we find, you know what, I don't really have the proper instrument to be interested. I can't even, I want to be interested, but I can't. So the first thing we have to do is like learn how to be, how to stabilize, and uh, the present moment awareness, so we can be aware of something relatively subtle, like the mind. Another one of the elders in the Thai Forest tradition, and they talk about the chitta, <clears throat> the heart mind, a lot, as the. I guess you could say the object of awareness, and uh, this teacher, excuse me, would tell his students to watch the mind, right at the mind. Right. Those are the kind of teachers. You know, when you get an an instruction like that from a teacher, you just want to say, "What? (laughs) Watch the mind, right at the mind." And so when people would ask, you know, for like, "Give me, give me a little bit more." Oh, well, that's too hard. Give me an easier way. And then he would say something like, Don't send don't send the mind outside. In other words, keep the mind right at the mind. Keep the knowing mind right at the mind. So just imagine this could be something that we share in small groups next Monday when we have small groups at the end. Like how to uh, how to get interested in the mind all day long. Still do what we have to do as a human being, as a parent, as a partner, as an employee, as a citizen, somebody who cares, wants to make the world a better place, somebody who has to wash dishes. right? So as a human being, Can we function in just that ordinary sense of duties and responsibilities and be interested in the mind all day long? That's an interesting question. Watch the mind right at the mind. Don't send the mind. Don't send your mind outside. And I remember another teacher saying that, you know, the mind is sort of, when we... Observe the mind when we get interested in the mind. It's sort of funny. It's like there's not much there When we look at the mind But we know there's a mind because it knows things Right, there's a lot of knowing going on like whatever you're knowing whatever you're feeling right now so there are objects being known by the mind so We know there's a mind because there's this experience being known by the mind. That's what I said a little bit earlier when I was talking about the refuges, Buddha knowing Dhamma. We're so appreciative of Dhamma, even if we're having a rough patch and difficult stuff is happening, because it it helps us stay close to the secret to happiness, right? Right? which is the heart and mind, getting to know the heart and mind. So before we end, I want to sort of put this course, Mindfulness of the Mind, this is the third satipatthana, the third establishment or the third foundation of mindfulness. And I just want to put it in the context of this uh, discourse or this collection of teachings from the Buddha. And here's a really excellent resource for people who want to dig deep. Uh, Venerable Analio, this German monk, has written three books on the Satipatthana. He keeps learning, his books keep getting better and better. And this is a more practical uh, expression of what he's come to know about these teachings from the Buddha on mindfulness. And it's called Satipatthana Meditation, a Practice Guide by Analeo, by Venerable Analeo, this German monk, one of my teachers. And uh, so you can get a digital version of that or you can uh, get a paper version. It was published by uh, Wind Horse Publications, I think in England. Here in Minneapolis, Moon Palace Books will order you a copy if you want to pick it up there. And I want to just share a little bit how to hold these teachings on mindfulness of the mind. And I really love the image that Venerable Analio uses to help us understand the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness. And especially this will be useful for those of you who were here in the winter when we did mindfulness of the body, here in the spring when we did mindfulness of feeling tone. So the way he thinks about this map that is the Buddhist teachings on the foundations of mindfulness, it's really one of the maps. And remember, there are a lot of maps the Buddha used and they're overlapping maps. They're overlapping, they're all pointing to here, this and here and now, or this being known, this experience of mind. A knowing mind, knowing, the object, or knowing the experience here in the space of the mind that is arising in the space of the mind, and so the he uses the image of a wheel, which is a sort of the sacred image that was used in the early years of after the time the Buddha passed away. Just a the symbol. They didn't really have statues in the early years. That was more uh, arose competing with greek culture with alexander the great conquering much of that part of the world and of course the greeks had their statues so then buddhist culture started to have really get into statues as well but before that the the primary image used to represent the path was a wheel standing with eight spokes for the eightfold path and so Venerable Analeo uses this and The hub of the wheel is embodied awareness, because the body, this embodied presence is something we can begin with easily, something we can come back to. Of course, embodiment is being known, where? Here, in the heart, right here. When we, right now, all of us, I'm assuming, we all have bodies, so let's just be aware, let's just tune into this embodied awareness right now. Here and now, it's like this. And we, when we settle in, we realize this inside, outside, mind, body, it's all here and now in the heart, being known. It's okay to call it a body. It's okay to use the image of the body to know what fingers and how they're different than the toes. But our subjective experience right now of embodiment, what's that? It's sensation being known here in the space of the mind, the space of the heart. So that's the hub of the wheel. And then the seven spokes of the wheel are these seven meditation techniques, let's call them, that the Buddha teaches in these um, teachings on the foundations of mindfulness. And there are three related to the body that we did in January and February. And uh, there's the meditation on feeling tone. And then we come to the meditation on the mind that we'll be working with these next six weeks. And then in the fall, we'll do meditation on dhammas, which is really looking at cause and effect in the mind. What, When I pay attention to what, in what way does the mind stabilize and get clear? When I pay attention to what, in what way does the mind get distracted, get disturbed, get shallow or fragmented? Right. So just understanding how the mind comes into balance and how the mind loses balance so that these seven spokes really work together. The teachings the Buddha gave on mindfulness of the body, it's not so much him telling us to be aware of the body, but really giving us some reflections that transform how we understand what the body is. So we can really meet, know the body as it is, and not just be stuck in our concept of the body. Same thing with feeling tone, you know, when we are aware of a pleasant feeling or an unpleasant feeling or even a neutral feeling, we immediately go to our reactivity. If it's a pleasant feeling, we're immediately almost lost in liking it and we're no longer aware of that more raw pleasantness of the experience. Same with an unpleasant experience. How long are we simply in a relaxed, clear way, aware of the unpleasantness before we immediately start to spin with, how can I get away? How can I fix? How can I distract myself from the unpleasantness? And with neutrality, you know, we ignore it because it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. So we learn like, oh, I don't have to react to feeling because it's going to change pretty quick anyway. So I can just stay, this is like what we did in the spring, we learned to just stay interested in feeling tone with some continuity. And it's such a liberating thing to realize I don't have to react in each moment dependent on the particular feeling tone that I'm feeling. I can just be aware of it, I can be sensitive to it, I can be exposed to it and vulnerable to it and learn it's actually okay when things are unpleasant to be intimately aware of the unpleasantness and it's okay when things are pleasant to be intimately aware that it's pleasant and especially, turns out to be especially relevant with neutral because a lot of life is neutral and if we don't know how to be with neutral we're going to miss a large portion of what it is to be a human being and a lot of opportunities to wake up When we learn these seven contemplations on the body, on feeling tone, mind, and this um, dhammas that usually is left untranslated, the fourth foundation, which really is about how to shape, develop the mind in the direction of awakening. And it's understanding cause and effect, the conditional nature of the mind, The mind has natural ways to become fragmented and superficial and distracted. And the mind can also, there are also natural, organic pathways toward balance and clarity and stability so that that mind that is balanced and stable and clear sees things as they are, sees the causes of suffering and the causes for release and releases what needs to be released and inside awakening happens and that brings us to the rim of the wheel so the hub is embodied awareness what we return to over and over again and we use these seven contemplations and in particular these six weeks we're mastering developing some competence with the contemplation on mind And like the shape of the mind, the quality of the mind. And I'll get to that next before we end tonight. And uh, that leads to the rim, which is dwelling independently without clinging to anything. (laughs) Freedom, right? And that's a beautiful image for these teachings on the Satipatthana and for really one map of the whole path. As the Buddha says, Mindfulness, O practitioners, I declare, is essential in all things everywhere. It is as salt is to curry. (laughs) I like that kind of earthy image. Mindfulness, O practitioners, I declare, is essential in all things everywhere. It is as salt is to curry. I always like to say that uh, mindfulness is like the universal solvent. There's a line from the Buddhist teachings, a tangle within, a tangle without, who in the world can untangle the tangle? And it isn't so much who, but what can untangle the tangle. And it's that steady, wise, unflappable mindfulness, because in that space, that balanced, penetrating, not like I'm trying to get to the bottom penetrating, but being this balanced, stable space, whatever needs to unwind will unwind. Whatever needs dissolving will dissolve. Nothing really holds together with the continuity of mindfulness. And when everything falls apart or implodes, then the mind realizes how to show up to the conditioned world. This is what we call our ordinary world of responsibilities and relationships. We have to see, I know it's a provocative term, we have to see the empty nature, or we, if you don't like the word empty, we just have to see the nature of reality in order to know how to live in reality. But because our attention is mostly superficial and governed by fixed views, we never see things for what they are. We don't have those refuges of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma, so we don't get Sangha, that you know, wise and kind awakened activity. So let me go right to the third foundation. I'll read the Sutta, and this is in that uh, text. So I, I'll do it one more time here in case people didn't see it, so there's that link you might want to make a copy of. And uh, we'll get up um, the resources, but it has all the resources from the past course, as well as a few things, including what I'm going to be reading right now, which is just this section of the the Buddhist discourse on satipatthana mindfulness, uh, just the part on mindfulness of the mind. Actually, this first part is from the very beginning. And it goes like this <clears throat> The Blessed One said this This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and distress, for the attainment of the right method, and for the realization of unbinding, Nibbana. In other words, the four foundations of mindfulness. Now here's the part on mindfulness of the mind. And how does a practitioner remain focused on the mind in and of itself? There is the case where a practitioner, when the mind has lust, discerns the mind has lust. There's no judgment there. It's just like a mirror. When the mind has greed, the mirror reflects. Oh yeah, there's greed now. It's like this. When the mind has aversion, she discerns the mind has aversion. When the mind is without aversion, she discerns that the mind is without aversion. When the mind has delusion, one discerns the mind has delusion. When the mind is without delusion, one discerns that the mind is without delusion. When the mind is constricted or heavy or sleepy, one discerns that the mind is constricted. When the mind is scattered or restless, one discerns that the mind is scattered, right? Clear, without judgment. And it's really just, this is something we can do all week long, both in our formal sits and throughout the day. How's the mind doing? That's really the takeaway, just getting curious. So curious enough that whether you ask the question with words in your mind or you're just interested without words, But to be interested, well how is the mind doing right now? Is there aversion or not? Is there greed operating in the mind or not, like leaning forward, wanting something to happen or not? Is the mind clear or deluded? Like when I think I know, when when the heart is under the influence of a fixed view, well that's called delusion. Because no matter how we conceive it, it's never that way, that's what the Buddha said. So fixed views, of course, always come in the form of concept, an idea that the mind grips, is attached to. But no matter how sublime the idea is, the idea isn't the way it is. The way that it is, is this experience right now, right? It's not like we need a different moment to get to the truth of things. We just need to meet this moment with clarity, with not a filter based on our conditioning, which is not clear. You know, the conditioning is really arises from self-view. So that's the first section. And then the Buddha goes on. Now he's really talking more about a mind that's not distracted, present, And then the question for that then becomes, like, well, how settled is that not distracted mind? Right. So the he asks, when the mind is enlarged, one discerns that the mind is enlarged. When the mind is not enlarged, one discerns that the mind is not enlarged. That's a funny word, enlarged. Different people translate that word differently. But I, the way I understand that, like the mind enlarges, like. Unified around what's being known in that moment. So there's the experience, like maybe the experience of the body sitting. And there's a non-distracted. And, the, and you'll feel that, like when when you have an awareness of the present moment object that's not disturbed and not superficial. There's a wholeness to that, a, a unification to that. That's the mind enlarged. And then he goes on, when the mind is surpassed, one discerns that the mind is surpassed. When the mind is unsurpassed, one discerns that the mind is unsurpassed. Now the way I understand this unsurpassed is, and we'll be working with this during these six weeks, so I'm just sort of going through the, the teachings from this particular part of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness, just for the first time for us. So how I understand unsurpassed is, not only am I present with the body, let's say, but I'm also, the mind is also, or you could say wisdom, is also aware that it's being known. So, because in every moment there are two things. There's the object, like the body sitting, the sensations of the body sitting, and that it's known. And together, the body sitting, the sensations of the body sitting, being known, together that's the present moment. That's reality. So enlarged means, i really aware of the body, but I'm not so aware that it's being known. Right? I'm just seeing the object. And then the unsurpassed means, I'm aware of the object, and I'm aware that the object is being known. So now, see, the... It's unsurpassed because now everything in the present moment is included in the awareness. Then there's a third. So you can see that the Buddha is just describing the profundity of the non-distraction. How stable is your non-distractedness? Enlarged, unsurpassed, and the next word is concentrated or not. Concentrated means that you have this unsurpassed awareness of the object and that it's being known with no wavering, right? So there's a stillness, a stability in that knowing. It's not kind of come and a going, there's continuity. That's what we mean by concentration there. And the last one is released or not released or liberated or not liberated. That means that that unwavering present moment awareness of the object being known is so stable so full, so unshakable, that there's no selfing, no craving, nobody being neurotic. It's all you know, kind of self-centeredness, let's say, has been squeezed out. It's suppressed because the continuity and the fullness of the presence is so strong that there's moments, or at least a moment, where craving or selfing is not there anywhere, even in subtle manifestations in the mind. So the mind is, in that moment, released from the grip of craving, released from the net of delusion. It's free, the mind is free, and so that person experiences the taste of freedom. Oh, this must be what the Buddha is pointing to with his teachings, this capacity, this potential to be free. And then he ends, like the Buddha repeats this passage 13 times in the collection of teachings in the Satipatthana. In this way, one remains focused internally on the mind in and of itself, or externally on the mind in and of itself, or both internally, externally on the mind in and of itself. Or one remains focused on the phenomena of arising with regard to the mind on the phenomenon of passing away, or both. Or once mindfulness, there is a mind is maintained to the extent of knowledge and remembrance and one remains independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a practitioner remains focused on the mind in and of itself. So you know, normally when we think of the mind, we think of me, right? But now we're really using awareness to observe the mind as a natural process or as a natural happening. And we don't give that, we don't impose or project that overlay that it's me. We just observe the mind as it is, as a phenomenon that's showing up. And that's what allows for the learning so let me remind us because next week as i mentioned we'll have small groups at the end and uh this week just in very natural ways in your formal sits but when you're sitting down outside or lying down on the couch just get interested and it could start by just wisdom saying in the mind you know honey there's a mind here there's a heart here what is the what is it what is the nature, what is it to have a mind here and now, turning the awareness to the mind? And then you can use some of these um, basic um, questions that come in this discourse, like is, it a, is there greed in the mind? And it, like, if the answer is no, it doesn't seem to be any greed, then get curious about the mind free of greed. And if there is greed, get curious of the mind with greed. Is there aversion or not aversion? Delusion, distractedness or non distractedness? Sleepy, heavy, constricted or not? Restless, scattered or not? And if it seems the mind seems relatively not distracted, some continuity of present moment awareness, then get interest like how stable. You don't have to even remember the different categories of that stability. Just get curious, like, how steady is that? How complete? Is there anything this stability of awareness is not yet seeing, not yet feeling, not yet including? Because this is what it looks like to be curious about the mind that's always here and now. And the key is to remember. You don't need a different moment than the moment there is, that you're having. That moment would be perfectly fine, because every moment is a moment of mind. There's no such thing as a moment without a mind. <laughs> so let me just end our time by reading a few passages from the Dhammapada. These, these are the translations that Gil Fransdal has in his translation, which is a wonderful uh, collection of these verses the Dhammapada and this is from chapter 3 on the mind and at the very beginning of the chapter the Buddha the passages read the restless agitated mind hard to protect hard to control the sage makes straight as a Fletcher the shaft of an arrow if you don't know a Fletcher is someone who makes arrows Like a fish out of water thrown on dry ground, this mind thrashes about trying to escape Mara's command. The mind hard to control, flighty, alighting where it wishes, one does well to tame. The disciplined mind brings happiness. How do we discipline the mind? This is not the Buddha, but me now. How do we discipline the mind? We watch it. An undisciplined mind is an unobserved mind. A trained mind is a mind that is observed without judgment and without control. Just seeing it changes the mind. And now i reading. The mind hard to see, subtle, alighting where it wishes, the sage protects, the watch mind brings happiness. And then I'll skip a little, just read the last passages. Whatever an enemy may do to an enemy, or haters to one another, far worse is the harm from one's own wrongly directed mind. Neither mother nor father nor any other relative can do one as much good as one own one's own well-directed mind. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.